Please turn with me, if you would, to our sermon text for this morning, which is found in the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. It's a tiny little text there at the end of of, uh, Hebrews chapter 4, but it's a wonderful text about the work of our risen and ascended King Jesus. And uh, before we read that together, Hebrews 4, let's pray one more time together. Oh, our Father, we thank you for your word, which is true and right and good. We thank you that you speak to us through your word, that you have not left us to our own devices, to our own wisdom. Uh, You have not left us to our own intellect to figure things out, but you have given us your word, which teaches us what is true, and you have given us your spirit so that we might receive what is true We pray, Father, that you would work in us by your Spirit, that we would receive your word this morning, that we would be built up by it and encouraged by it and directed to our Savior through your Scriptures. Father, teach us this morning, lead us this morning by your Spirit to the risen Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, our sermon text for this morning is Hebrews chapter 4, verses 4 through 16. God's Word says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Well, as I feel like I keep saying week after week, we are living in an interesting moment. For so many reasons. Uh, We are quarantined at home, as it were. Uh, When we do go out, we're told to stand six feet away from others, to practice good social distancing. And uh, now I think that's a good idea, and nothing that I'm about to say is meant to be taken to go against uh, the wisdom of our doctors. But it is an odd moment. And for many of us, it highlights our need for human interaction. I was reminded of this recently when I watched the movie Castaway. Uh, Tom Hanks's character in that movie, uh, when cut off from all human interaction, he creates a person to interact with. He talks to that person. He argues with that person. He mourns the loss of that person, which is really just a volleyball. See, we need human interaction. We, we need to get close We need to smell people's bad breath. We need to feel their handshake and their hug and their gentle touch on our shoulder. We need to draw near. There is something about physical proximity which ministers to our souls, maybe even preserves our sanity. Human beings were created for community. But not just with one another. We were created for community with God. We were created to draw near to Him. 
And yet too often we live in a kind of self-imposed quarantine from our Creator. We spend our lives social distancing from God. The writer of Hebrews this morning is going to encourage us to draw near. In our text, uh, we see four aspects of that drawing near. We see the way through our high priest. We see the encouragement because he sympathizes. We see the manner by means of bold prayer. And we see the benefit to receive mercy and grace. So our text this morning encourages us to draw near through our high priest because he sympathizes by bold prayer and to receive mercy and grace. First, the way. Draw near through our high priest. Now, social distancing from God actually makes sense. It really does. Uh, God is scary. God is unknown. God is different from us. God is holy. And while we don't always know what that means, for some reason, for most of us, it sounds bad. Oddly enough, in the Old Testament, holiness was treated as a contagion that you didn't want to catch. In Ezekiel, we are told the priests were to change their garments when they went out to the people, quote, lest they transmit holiness to the people with their garments. See, there was a fear of a pandemic of holiness in the camp of Israel. Now, now why would that be? You know, in the beginning, it wasn't so. In the beginning, God dwelt with his people in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve had direct, unhindered access to their father. But then Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They became infected with the real disease of sin, and they were cast out of God's presence. When God freed Israel from Egypt, he brought them to himself at Mount Sinai. But John Doe, Israelite, right, was not allowed to approach God. The Israelites had to stand far off. They could not even touch the mountain, lest they die. A select few could come up halfway up the mountain, but Moses alone was allowed to come to the top and meet with God face to face. You see, God was too holy. Because of our sin, holiness is dangerous. God can be scary, right? He is sinless. I am not. How can I come into his presence? I can't, so I stand far off. And so the Israelites were brought just close enough to God, but not too close. Israel was told to practice proper social distancing, lest the Lord break out against them. And this social distancing program was not just a few weeks or even a few months. God had a long-term plan in view. And so God had Moses build a tabernacle and later Solomon a temple, a kind of quarantined area in which God would meet with his people. But again, there were these three layers, as it were. M most Israelites could only come into the outer court. They could not come too close because of their sin and uncleanness. See, because of their sin and uncleanness, the holiness of God was dangerous. Not, uh, note that it was not that God was worried about coming into contact with their sin. It's that he was worried about them coming into contact with his holiness. It is the people who are in danger, not God. And so only the priests would go into the holy place, and only one priest once a year would go into the most holy place. Israel drew near to God, but only through a representative called their high priest. 
Now, Hebrews tells us that the Old Testament temple system was a shadow of things to come. Uh, The tabernacle was a copy of something else. God showed Moses the pattern on the mountain. It was a copy, really, of the whole created order. The outer court being kind of the visible world, the, the most holy place being heaven, where God's throne is, and the holy place being the intersection between the two. And here is the the first point that we need to see. Verse 14 says, We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. As Moses went up on Sinai on behalf of Israel, as the high priests once a year went into the most holy place on behalf of Israel, so Jesus has gone not into the holy place made with hands, as Hebrews puts it in chapter 9, but into heaven. We have a high priest who has passed through the heavens into the heavenly holy place on our behalf. Of course, Hebrews 4.14 starts with the word since. Since this is so, which seems to imply the writer has really already made this point, and he has. Way back in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, he says, After making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. And then it tells us after tasting death for everyone, he has been crowned with glory and honor. Chapter 2, verse 9. He finished his work and so has entered God's rest. Chapter 4, verse 10. So Jesus, our great high priest, has done the work of offering a sacrifice for sins by dying for us in our place. But then on account of his own intrinsic righteousness, the Father raised him from the dead and he entered into the heavenly holy of holies to present his sacrifice to the Father on our behalf. And since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, Hebrews tells us. Now, you might wonder, okay, well, why is that? Why does Jesus being at the right hand of the Father encourage us to hold fast our confession? Well, because the writer has said in chapter 3, verse 14, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. See, this is the genuine mystery and power of faith. Our faith pierces into heaven. And when we believe in Jesus, we are united to the risen Jesus. By faith, we share in Christ and have access to Christ. But where is Christ? Christ is above in the heavens. And what amazing power then has faith that through faith, we are united to Christ in the heavenlies. And of course, this comes about by the power of the Spirit, who is the one who does the work of uniting us to Christ by faith. So Jesus has passed through the heavens. He presented his own blood to the Father as a sacrifice for sin. He then poured out his spirit on the church that we might believe in him. And in believing, we are where he is. We too, as Paul puts it, have been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. And so this is the way to draw near through our high priest who has entered in. As Jesus puts it, no one comes to the Father except through him. Let's look at point two, the encouragement. Draw near because he sympathizes. Now, the idea of drawing near to God, even through Jesus, brings up a question, a, a theological question, but also a very personal one. If God's holiness is so dangerous in the Old Testament that the people of Israel could not even touch the mountain. If only one man in Israel, and he only once a year, could enter into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, uh, 
how could we ever think of entering in? How could I draw near sinner as I am? Maybe some of you have a keen sense of your sin. You think God would never, could never accept me. I mean, I, I get that Jesus died for sinners, but me? My sin? Have you seen my heart? Do you know the things I think? Do you understand the perverse desires of my soul? Well, no, I haven't seen your heart. I, I don't know the particulars of what is in your soul, but I do know this. It is no worse than what is in mine. Whatever is there is in here as well. But I know something even more important than that, which brings us to verse 15. Verse 15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses. He has been tempted and tried like us with one important qualification. He is without sin. Uh, first, Jesus sympathizes with us in our weakness. The word sympathy means to feel with. You know, apathy means to lack feelings. Antipathy means to have a negative feeling. To be pathetic is to arouse feelings. Sympathy is to feel with. And Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. What does that include? Well, there is no pain. There is no weakness. There is no suffering. There is no sickness that you have experienced that Christ cannot sympathize with. He feels your pain along with you, as it were. And we see this often in the Gospels when Jesus is said to have compassion. Matthew 9, 36, when he saw the crowds, Jesus had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Or Luke 7, 13, when he saw a widow, Jesus had compassion on her and raised her dead son. Two blind men cry out to Jesus, Lord, have mercy and out of compassion he touches their eyes and they are healed. You know, earlier in Hebrews, we read that Jesus was made like his brothers in every respect so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. Jesus took on humanity in the incarnation. He has walked a mile in your shoes. Remember, this is the Jesus who was born in a barn because his own family did not have room for him in Bethlehem, his ancestral home. He had to flee Bethlehem and live in exile because he was hunted by the political leader of his day. When he preached in his hometown, they tried to throw him off a cliff. His mother and brothers thought he had lost his mind. The religious leaders conspired against him. He was falsely arrested, falsely accused, stripped, beaten, abused, mocked, nailed to a tree naked and alone only to be mocked some more. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You see, it is true that perhaps Jesus has not suffered the same pains you have, but he has suffered pain. Perhaps Jesus did not suffer the same kind of rejection you have, but he has suffered rejection. Perhaps Jesus has not suffered the same shame, the same humiliation, the same loss that you have, but he has suffered shame and humiliation and loss. And this is perhaps the point of the plural word here, weaknesses. He sympathizes with all of our varied many weaknesses, infirmities, and pains. And if all that were not enough at the cross, Jesus was rejected by his Father in our place. 
He knew the depth of rejection and abandonment in his hour of need. Think of whatever you suffer right now, whatever trials, whatever temptations, consider where your faith is tested. Jesus has been through it all. He can sympathize with you in your weaknesses. And yes, even with your temptations, right? He has been tempted, we're told, in every respect as we are. And this word tempted can also mean trial. And I say that not to, not to negate it, but to enlarge it, right? Jesus has been tried. Jesus' trust in his Father has been tried. Satan tried or tempted him in the wilderness. Peter tempted him when he said, may it never be to the cross. Jesus has undergone every temptation. And this is emphasized in our text in two ways. First, by the, by the phrase, in every respect. There is no respect in which he has not been tempted. He has been tempted in every respect. And then we're told, as we are. As we are, meaning presently, as we are tempted, as we are today, as we will be tomorrow, as, as we continue to be, Jesus in every respect has been tempted as we are. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus has sinned, of course. The writer of Hebrews is quick to say, yet without sin. The New Testament everywhere confirms that Jesus is without sin. Uh, Peter, who ate and drank, walked and worked with Jesus for three years, said of him, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Paul, who once persecuted him until confronted by the risen Jesus on the Damascus road, said that Jesus knew no sin. See, Jesus was a lamb without blemish or spot. Tempted in every way, yet without sin. And Hebrews' point is to say that he can sympathize with you in your weaknesses. It was because of that sympathy that during his earthly life, Jesus received sinners and ate with them. This is why he called the weary and heavy laden to come to him and rest. This is why he healed the sick and preached to the poor and comforted the afflicted and forgave the broken and contrite. Do you still think that God could never accept you? I mean, look at the compassion of your Savior. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, pleading on your behalf based on the merits of his own blood. And he is not there thinking, when will this one get their act together? When will they ever learn? How much longer will I have to put up with him? He is there with a heart of compassion and sympathy, welcoming you to the throne of grace. Don't despise the compassion of Jesus. That is, don't, don't belittle it. It is big enough even for you. Now, there's another way of despising it, of course. Uh, C.S. Lewis brings this out in his book, The Great Divorce. One of the characters there says something like, I don't want anyone's bleeding charity. And, of course, the response is, but, but that is exactly what you need, right? You need Christ's bleeding charity. See, some despise the cross out of, sense, out of a sense of their sin. They think their sin is too great even for the cross. But others despise the cross out of pride. They think they are too good to need the bleeding charity of Jesus. And it's true that, that you must own the depth of your sin before you can benefit from the grace of the cross. But your compassionate Savior cries out to all who are weak and weary and says, Come to me and I will give you rest. See, the way to draw near is 
through our high priest. And the encouragement to draw near is because he sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. And that brings us to the manner, draw near by bold prayer. You know, I said a moment ago that we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies, and it's true, we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies by faith in Jesus, we're united to Jesus, and so where He is there, we are in Him. But we also have our feet firmly planted on earth. And so our, our bodies are in the outer court, as it were, even as we are united to the one who has entered into the most holy place. So then how do we draw near? And to the answer to this question, I, I hope will we'll change your life. You know, some will be tempted to despise this as well. It seems too simple, possibly quaint or even silly, but I assure you it is profound and deep and I have not yet, uh, I have yet to fully understand uh, the full reality of the things I'm about to tell you. Uh, we enter into the most holy place through prayer. We draw near to our Father in prayer. Uh, in the tabernacle, there was a, a, a room between the outer court and the most holy place called the holy place. And in the holy place, there were three pieces of furniture, the lampstand, the table of showbread, and the altar of incense. And these correspond pretty neatly to the word, the sacraments, and prayer. Uh, this is the place where heaven and earth meet. But it was the altar of incense whose smoke rose up from the table and penetrated into the most holy place. The, the smoke of the altar was said to fill not the holy place where the altar was, but the most holy place. The smoke of that altar is symbolic of our prayers. Revelation talks about golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And the psalmist prays in Psalm 141, let my prayer be counted as incense before you, O Lord. See, the symbolism is, is really twofold. The, the smoke of the incense rising up to heaven symbolizes our prayers, entering into the heavenly places, penetrating the veil, as it were, they rise as incense, as sweet, pleasing fragrance to our Father. How do we draw near to the throne of grace? Through prayer. Because our prayers penetrate the veil of heaven. That is actually what Hebrews 4.16 is getting at. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. And now that word confidence does not mean simply confidence in my heart, but confidence in my speech. It's most often connected with speaking, as in speaking plainly or speaking openly or speaking boldly. And what is the point? The point is we have confidence to speak in the Father's presence. The exhortation is to draw near Draw near with that confidence to the throne of grace. I want you to think about the options for a minute, right? You, 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 you do have, you have the option of not drawing near, whether because of passivity or apathy. Maybe you say, well, God knows what I need. I don't need to tell him. But of course, Jesus says, ask and you will receive. And James says, you do not have because you do not ask. And so will you trust in your wisdom or the Bible's on this issue? 
You also have the option of, of drawing near, but in timidity, right? Some lack confidence. Are you timid in the Father's presence? Hebrews says, draw near with confidence. Now, where does such confidence come from? It comes from your great high priest who has passed through the heavens and is sympathetic with your weaknesses. He feels your pain. He knows your temptations. You draw near to the, his throne of grace. Yes, it is a throne, and so it conveys his majesty, a majesty which, which ought to be intimidating. But it is a throne of grace, and so it conveys his mercy, a mercy which ought to be inviting. Third, one might draw near with confidence, but a misplaced confidence. You might draw near with a sense of entitlement, making demands based on your own merits. But then you come through yourself and not through Jesus. Remember, no one comes to the Father except through Him. You must come through your great high priest, which means you come as a sinner in need of a sacrifice to remove sin and make you whole. Still, others might come with a, a kind of wavering confidence. James says we must ask in faith without doubting. Otherwise, like a wave of the sea tossed by the wind, we will be double-minded and unstable and should expect to receive nothing from the Lord. But let me say very quickly, James is not chastising the weak in faith, but the hypocrite. And consider Mark uh, chapter 9, where, the, where a father brings his demon-possessed son to Jesus and says, If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cries out and says, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus rebukes the unclean spirit and heals the son. See, James is not chastising the weak in faith, but only the hypocrite, the one who wants to have it both ways, the one who is unwilling to commit because he's always waiting for something better to come along. And see, actually, sometimes bold prayer looks like weak faith coming to the Father through a strong Savior. And of course, that is the way we are called to come. We are called to be like the leper who, setting aside all convention and social expectations, comes right up to Jesus, falls down at his feet and says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretches out his hand, touches him and says, I will be clean. Notice Jesus has both the power and the will to make us clean. He has entered into the heavenly places and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Having made a sacrifice for sin, that sacrifice being complete, His work being done, all power and authority are His. But He also has sympathy for us in our weaknesses. He will be clean. See, because of the nature of our King, we can approach without apprehension, without uncertainty. There is no anxiety here, only boldness confidence in our access to the throne of grace. If you are still anxious or still fearful, set your eyes on Jesus. Consider His person and work. Remember His sympathy and His sacrifice. Find boldness in Him. Which, of course, brings us to our last point. Draw near through our high priest who has passed through the heavens because He sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. By bold petition at the throne of grace. Finally, the benefit, draw near to receive mercy and grace. 
There are different approaches uh, to our needs, of course. Some think, I don't need anything from God. If I want something, I go get it. Others, a little more pious, say things like, uh, God helps those who help themselves, which in the end often amounts to about the same thing. Still others go to the other extreme and think, if I only believe God will give me whatever I want, whatever I think will make me happy, if I just have enough faith, it's mine. But notice the exhortation of the writer of Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What can we expect from the throne of grace? Mercy and grace. Now, mercy and grace are not quite synonyms. Mercy is the, the benevolent attitude towards someone in need. The, the emphasis is on the neediness of the object of mercy. And then true mercy is always followed by action, right? The merciful one acts to bring relief to the one in need. Grace is favor, right? Like, like he's my favorite. And typically the emphasis is on free favor or unmerited favor. God's kindness toward us is a gift. And of course, God's grace also brings with it many other gifts. If God favors us, he provides, he cares, he protects, he gives us favors, gifts, tokens of his love. Of course, to receive mercy and grace means that we are wretched and unworthy. And think about it. To receive mercy means we are pitiable in some sense. And to receive grace means we have not merited and cannot merit God's favor. We need His grace, His free favor. If we are too proud to admit our wretched and unworthy condition, we cannot receive mercy and grace. But God's mercy and grace are the fountain from which all good from Him comes. If you want any good thing from God, you must seek first His mercy and grace. And it is these, these things which bring us help. And so we run to Jesus and we fall at his feet as the Canaanite woman whose daughter was demon-possessed. And we say, have mercy on me, O Lord, help me. Whatever your struggle, whatever your trial, call out to him. He is your helper. Now, he's not your Santa Claus, right? He's not a vending machine in the sky. Jesus, uh, James says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. God is not in the business of supporting the selfishness of our souls, but freeing us from it. But if you come to him in need, he will help. He will have compassion. He will sympathize, show mercy, and act when the time is right. You know, the phrase, in time of need, is, is one word. It means something like, at the right time. Which, of course, can be in our time of need. But it can also have the implication that God will help us when the time is right. Meaning, in His good timing. Not when we demand it. See, we want what we want when we want it. But God gives us something better. He helps us when the time is right. Of course, this requires patience on our part. Something which we all need right now. Of course, patience requires trust. Do you trust your Father? Do you trust Jesus who sympathizes with you, who has compassion, who shows mercy? Do you trust Him to do the right thing in the right time? Of course, don't forget, for Jesus, this meant going through the cross before the resurrection. 
Maybe you right now are in the valley of the shadow of death. Trust your Father to bring you through so that whether you live or die, He will give you what you need and bring you to Himself. Because, of course, on the last day, you will see Him face to face. At our resurrection, when we follow Jesus and are raised up bodily with Him, we too will dwell in the most holy place. When we need no more temple, because God Himself will be with us as our God. And so with that hope, draw near. Draw near through our high priest who has passed through the heavens. Draw near because He sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. Draw near by bold petition at the throne of grace. Draw near to receive mercy and grace to help when the time is right. Jesus has entered into the heavenly holy place. He cares for you and invites you to his throne. Draw near to speak boldly about your needs at the throne and you will receive mercy and grace to help when the time is right. Let's pray. Oh, our Father, we draw near to you right now. We draw near through your Son, Jesus, our great High Priest, our Savior, the one who has borne our sin in the cross, the one who has presented himself as a sacrifice before your throne of grace. We draw near through Jesus, the one who sympathizes with us, the one who knows our weakness, who knows our sin, who knows our temptation, and yet loves us and cares for us nonetheless. We draw near by laying our cares before you, we draw near, speaking boldly, not because, not because we are great, because he is great. We draw near to receive mercy and grace. Help us, Father, in our need. Help each one of us in our time of need. Care for us, watch over us, protect us during this time. Help us to look to you and rest in you and trust in you. Help us to know your fatherly care. That no matter what, you will be with us. And that our Savior Jesus will shepherd us through the valley and bring us through on the other side. We thank you for this hope and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.